The establishment powers that be, that rule the internet and the entire flow of information these days, say that vaccine hesitancy is being driven by misinformation. And that misinformation, it must be stopped because it's killing untold millions of people, probably billions of people, probably even entire civilizations that have yet to be discovered on far away and distant planets. But who decides exactly what qualifies as information? How do they decide that that information is disinformation or misinformation? And maybe, maybe that the hesitancy that we are seeing across the globe, because it's not just in a specific nation, but we're seeing global demonstrations and protests against these mandatory vaccines. And we're seeing global uh, vaccine hesitancy. Maybe that is all being fueled by lack of transparency. And it's raising a question among the general public, why such a totalitarian push of one, censorship, and then two, mandatory vaccines from the ruling elite. Why? If the science is so clear and so convincing, then why is there such fear? Why is there such control? Why the censorship and why the compulsion? Hey, it's Lucas Scrobot, and you're listening to The Lucas Scrobot Show, where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future. Episode 241, July 18th, 2021, coming to you from Planet Lockdown. Yeah, lockdown everywhere. We're about to, here in the Middle East, go into a four-day lockdown. Can't leave the house. Australia is in the midst of or going into a five-day lockdown where you can't leave your house. Everything's closed. We're seeing protests across uh, Europe uh, concerning mandatory vaccines in France, in Greece. And it, it, leads, it leads me to wonder, why, why is there such a, what seems to me to be a totalitarian push, an authoritarian push to control media, to control the information, the flow of information, to control people and in moving far past uh, liberalism or libertarianism and moving to controlling every aspect of society, not just the aspects of our movement and the aspects of our business, but even pushing towards universal basic income, pushing towards controlling what you can and can't post, pushing towards who you can and can't associate with, and then creating lists so that other people can know what sort of information that you might be reading or consuming on the big, bad, terrible internet, because the internet is a scary place. But we, at the show, uh, probably a year or two ago, we created these, these stickers. And the sticker is this little warning sign, and it says, watch your thoughts. And it it, the triangle represents the triangle of cognitive behavioral therapy. In cognitive behavioral therapy, at the top of the triangle, it says, watch your thoughts, because your thoughts control the second point of the triangle. Your feelings and your feelings influence or control your actions, and then your actions come up and reinforce that singular thought that you have. So if you have a negative thought or a thought of doom and gloom, maybe about your significant other, that is going to lead into a spiral 
a negative spiral that normally happens quite quickly about your relationship. But if you can replace that one negative thought that might be a lie, that might be misinformation, and you can replace it with something that is true rather than my significant other doesn't like me or doesn't enjoy spending time with me and replacing it with we have a great relationship, we, my significant other does laugh with me, they do like me, that then puts us on a virtuous cycle. Now, the reason that I bring this sticker up, and I love this sticker, it reminds me to guard my thoughts, it reminds me to be sober-minded, it reminds me to be careful about the thoughts that are flitting through my head, because the, the progressive postmoderns would like to tell us that any thought that goes through our head, one, because we're just sacks of chemicals, and if we're just a sack of chemical, any thought that goes through our head, you know, that must be your true self. But that, that, that postmodern progressive ideology says, well, any thought that flies through your head, that must be your true self. But I absolutely reject that notion because I know that, I know that any thought that goes through my head might not be my thought. And I have the ability to take thoughts captive. I have the ability to, to evaluate thoughts and say, is that something that I want to adopt or not? Because thoughts are like Trojan horses that when we let them in, they take root in our life and they grow and they spread just like in cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, the, the powers, the elite powers that be, they, they well understand this and they've understood this for thousands of years, maybe not in the exact uh, psychological language as cognitive behavioral therapy, but they understand that if you can control the media, if you can control the flow of information, then you can control language. You can control thoughts. If you can control language, the, the things that people can and cannot say, then you can control what people do or do not think which is the top of this little triangle. If, you can, if I can control what I think, then I can, and can control my thoughts and control my tongue because the tongue is like a rudder. It turns our ship, the ship of our life any which way. The tongue is like a spark that can set a forest on fire. So language, it's thought and language is so important. If we can control those two things and if the, intellectual elite, the powers that be, if they can control what the public thinks or says, then they understand that they can control how the public feels. And if they can control how the public feels, they can control their behavior and what they do. And by doing so, they're able to rule the masses without force, without tyranny, without having to use violence, which in some ways, in, in, in a healthy society that hasn't, that has virtuous and truly virtuous, uh, not just ideas or, or ideals or notions, but is truly seeking to do good for everyone. That is a great thing when there is a, a sort of unity of thought and heart to bless one another, not for selfish gain or selfish ambition, but in serving one another. When there is that unity within a group, great things can happen because now there's not dissension, there's not division, and people can move forward and build something. But when 
there are controversial subjects, when there are life and death subjects, when there are different views of opinion, that is where we need to have a plethora of thoughts. We need to have a free exchange of ideas and of language so that we can discern we can discern what is the best way to move forward. We can discern what is the, the moral plumb line by which we should walk forward. When a, when a nation is forming or when, they're, when you, a nation is trying to create a movement or a group is trying to create a movement or uniformity, oftentimes they – and we see this, th this throughout the communism and socialism and the CCP and the USSR – we see a uniform being put into place, a dress code being put into place because if you can even control the way that people dress and if everyone is dressing uniform with uniformity and in conformity, then what it also implies by the visual eye is saying everyone is the same. Everyone is lockstep. Everyone is thinking and speaking the same thing. So I'm not going to harbor thoughts that might go against the establishment view. But the moment that someone can even dress differently, and by dressing differently, they're making a statement, they're, they're choosing a language, they're saying something, then that breaks that, that spell of uniformity and conformity where a person is able to say, wait, they are thinking something different than the establishment view. Maybe I could think something different too. I'm going to test and explore this idea. I'm going to weigh these ideas against each other because from that, from our ability to speak freely, that actually <laughs> concordantly or, or conversely, it gives us the ability to think because speaking freely is thinking freely. If, if we don't have the ability to speak freely, it inhibits our, our, our ability to actually think because speaking and communicating is the process of thinking and we have to be able to speak and talk things out in order to discern what we're thinking and in order to weigh and evaluate other ideas. This is even why a few episodes back when we're talking about this, this trans movement, or, or even uh, when we're talking about uh, critical race theory, CRT, if we just outright ban and try to ban it from curriculums and schools just outright, we're probably not going to win that war because critical race theory and all these ideologies that are coming through it, it's going far beyond. It goes far beyond what is in a textbook and it's it is in the way that something is even presented in speech. You can take any textbook and the way that a teacher can phrase or turn a question to a student can easily shape the, the form and the direction of the conversation. So censoring something outright is not the way to win. The way to win from a libertarian standpoint, and when I say libertarian, I do not mean necessarily progressive left because the progressive left has, has no longer really become libertarian. They have become anti-libertarian. They've become anti-liberal in so many ways as the, the Overton window of thought and speech has been moving. But the way to win is by having a free a free exchange of ideas where we're able to evaluate those ideas. But the powers that be do not want us to evaluate 
ideas. They want to control the narrative. They want to control the thought. And that's what we're going to be talking a little bit about today on this episode. And we're going to start with vaccine hesitancy. Now, for full disclosure, I love vaccines. I'm definitely not an anti-vaxxer. Our kids all get vaccinated. I am grateful. I'm deeply, deeply grateful for modern science. However, I would, for full disclosure, I would definitely categorize myself as vaccine hesitant. Now, what that means is probably at some point in the future, and for all you listening, if when you're if you're totally on the vaccine uh, anti-vax side, for sure you're going to hate me. And if you're on the like really pro-vax side, you're probably going to hate me too. But that's okay. Probably at some point in the future, maybe in a year, two years, if there's actual need, and there's we've reached a place where I feel like okay, this is this is safe. There's a, a safe option out there when it comes to a vaccine. We'll probably end up having to take one just because of the the ease of travel. Um, and, and we travel a lot. And it's going to be really difficult if these totalitarian methods and control, controlling the flow of travel across the globe, depending on how this all shakes out, I would prefer not to get one. We don't get the flu vaccine or shot. Um, so I, I, and we're in a place where age and health, it, the, the risk versus reward just doesn't seem to be there. But now there is a really global push right now to break vaccine hesitancy. And at the same time, there is an enormous amount of vaccine hesitancy. You look across Europe, you look across Australia, you look across the Middle East, and we see shocking rates. What the the pro-vax side, what the establishment would say would be shocking rates of vaccine hesitancy, which causes me to, has caused me to ask, well, why, why might there be such hesitancy? Where is this coming from? Now, the establishment would say, well, it's because of all this misinformation that's being put out there saying that, well, vaccines, this, this vaccine, the COVID vaccine is causing infertility. This COVID vaccine is causing deaths. This COVID vaccine, you know, all this mis, quote unquote misinformation. And at the same time, we're reading and we're seeing reports all over the place where it's not misinformation, but they're verifiable stories where we know people who, whether they, they've died after getting the vaccine or they have severe side effects, we see story after story after story. And so is all of a sudden all of these stories, is that all mis, now just misinformation? We're just supposed to dismiss the stories that are out there. Although I would say, to counter what I just said, it could be a confirmation bias. I mean, if there's been hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions of vaccines given out, and there's a maybe 50,000, 100,000, maybe there's more worldwide. We don't have an exact number of adverse side effects or maybe thousands of deaths worldwide. We, we don't know, at least I don't know from looking at the data, how much of that is actually correlated directly to a, the, the COVID vaccines or how much is just happens to be confirmation bias. There, there happened to be a, a comorbidity somewhere else that happened to trigger at the same time that maybe it was not related to the vaccine, just as we made the argument that all these COVID deaths that are being 
chalked up as COVID. Well, you know, maybe someone actually just died in a car accident and it wasn't because of COVID, but it was something else. And it's getting marked as a COVID death. I, I think it'd be fair to in the argument to say, okay, well, it can go both ways. Uh, for instance, I was checking uh, the American VARES report, um, the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, VARES. Now, when you go into this system, it's quite advanced. There's so many options to actually utilize it properly. You have to really know what you're doing. So I pulled just a really basic, really basic report looking at all of the vaccines from the, the time that this record was created beginning in 1990 and seeing what sort of percentage, what sorts of adverse reaction to vaccines were out there and how many of those are correlating to COVID. Now, what's important to note that right there on the, the VARS website, when you are entering their portal, there's a disclaimer that you need to click and accept or read, which is realizing that all of these reports does not mean that they're verified to be connected to that vaccine. It's someone had a vaccine and then afterwards, at some point afterwards, they had some sort of adverse reaction. They ended up in the hospital or resulted in death. And then those people, whether it's the individual or the doctor or the people around them, decided to file a claim. Now, this is only for America. There are... Obviously, 95% of the global population exists outside of America, so we don't have global numbers. But I, I feel like it is very important to note that we can't just look at these numbers and say, aha, there is the proof. We can't say that because the data, the statistics is definitely more complex than that. It would be the same thing as saying, aha, look. More black people are, are being arrested than white people, and therefore that's systematic racism. While we can say, well, actually, when you look at the, the, the number of crime that's committed per the population, we actually see that in America, black people are, are, are arrested or pulled over less than the proportionate amount of violent criminal crimes that they commit in America. Those are statistics. So the same way, if we're going to judge one thing by actually breaking down the statistics and understanding it, which... I was not able to do fully at this, but we need to understand that this could be far more complex than we're making it out to be in this little vignette that we're doing right here. But what it does show, what these numbers do show, is that there are a huge amount of either side effects or confirmation bias side effects or something that's going on with this vaccine. Whether it's people just don't trust it but if they don't trust it and then they're getting vaccinated, then that doesn't make fully sen full sense. And it could be a lot of these cases are, are just not verified. And if we broke them down, if someone was able to go through and break them down, we could see how many of these were actually uh, tied and directly correlated to these COVID vaccines. And of course, there's a varying number of them that are out there. I didn't even go down into that depth of, of Moderna versus Pfizer, et cetera. But he, here are the numbers. So the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System said that dating back to 1990, there was 1.5 million total cases reported. But get this, <laughs> of those cases, 
38%, 432,919 as of July 18th, 2021, were from COVID vaccines. So you're looking at that and you're saying, wait a minute, 38, 38%, 38% were, were related to a, a COVID vaccine. And then you look at the deaths and out of the, the deaths reported for COVID, and not for COVID, excuse me, for, for all the vaccines that were been reported to this virus, that the COVID vaccines, COVID-19 vaccines, account for 56.77% of all of all the, the cases going back from 1990. Now, again, not all of these are one-to-one correlated. We don't actually know. Did all of these 5,913 reports to VAERS, were those actually cases or were there other comorbidities maybe involved? Were there other things that were at play? Is there a direct link? But this is one reason. This is one reason why people are extremely hesitant. They do not feel safe. But the response that we are seeing, that I am seeing, instead of addressing these things head on from what I've seen, I see big tech and governments censor these things, try to call, if, if trying to call anyone who is speaking out about this or raising these questions, they're saying, well, this is dis- disinformation, this is misinformation, we need to censor or, or shadow ban or silence these sorts of uh, of narratives, these sorts of questions, these sorts of data points. And that to me, that to me signals and explains why people are mistrusting and why people are hesitant. To me, I'm hesitant at least, is one, because the stories that are out there the evidence that is out there, I don't feel like it's being addressed properly. And then two, instead of there being a free flow of information to say, yeah, let's have this out here. Let's let's air this conversation. Let's look at this. It seems as if the media powers that be in collusion with the government ruling elites that be are trying to just shut this down altogether to silence the conversation. And that breeds distrust, that breeds distrust among the public. For instance, this February, just a couple months ago, there was a Kuwaiti actor, Mashari Abalam. He died after receiving the Pfizer vaccine. Now, this is how the, the official narrative goes. And this, I think, even if this is true, even if this is true, it is highly, it, it makes me highly skeptical. It makes me highly skeptical that this is true just by the way it unfolds here this famous uh, kuwaiti actor 700,000 followers on instagram mashari abalam he he goes in to get his vaccine his the first vaccine of the the pfizer and he's very excited he posts on social media tells everyone get vaccinated this is a great thing you know i'm getting my first one bismillah in, in god's name like alhamdulillah Right afterwards, he comes down ill, sick, goes back into intensive care, and he dies a number of days later. The official story is that he contracted COVID 
at the vaccination center while getting vaccinated. That's the story. After we've heard story after story of this Pfizer vaccine causing people with rare blood conditions or, or, or heart conditions to have swelling in their hearts and, and, and then die, to have these adverse side effects from this vaccine that has not fully passed FDA global approval. It's still in, in its quote-unquote experimental phase. It's not fully been approved yet. And so what makes, I think, what makes people skeptical, what makes me skeptical, is hear this, this story that could be cause for someone to pause and say, hey, this seems like a problem. And instead of there being what I believe to be clear reporting or at least raising the fact that this seems like, well, maybe the vaccine had something to do with it. Maybe he didn't contract COVID and it was an adverse reaction to this bad vaccine. But instead, the narrative goes, ah, he got COVID. This is why we all need to get vaccinated. This is what causes people to distrust the media, to distrust the government that is controlling media. It's to distrust the CDC and the WHO. That is, there's, there's a one narrative that you must follow. And if you fall out of that narrative, then we are going to, one, silence you, and two, change the narratives. Now, as I said, vaccine hesitancy across the globe is at record, record numbers in Kuwait. 23% are, are pro-vaccine. That means 77% are vaccine hesitant in Kuwait. In Jordan, only 28% say that they'll get the vaccine. In Egypt, they did a, a poll of over 27,000 Egyptian medical students. This was back in January. And only 46% said they were excuse me, only 46% said they wanted to wait, meaning that only 54% were saying that they were actually going to get the vaccine. And of all of Egypt, 52% said they're unwilling or not sure if they're going to be vaccinated. Here's another story from Iraq, a gentleman named Mahmoud, who's an Iraqi civil servant. He said under the conditions of anonymity, that one of the reasons that he was vaccine hesitant, he had an appointment given to him by the, the government to get his jab, and then he decided to pass on it. One of the reasons he said, the vaccine has come here so fast, he told uh, DW. But that's so strange. In Iraq, with things like this, you usually can't get access without some corruption. You have to pay somebody. But the vaccine is free and available for everyone. It's a bit suspicious. Now, when you have a society that is continually feeling like anything that is good, they have to fight to get, that anything that is worth getting, that anything that is valuable, you have to twist some arms and pay someone off and slide money across the table, underneath the table. And now these people are being distrusting because of past history. And when you, when you couple it with narratives that say, hey, and scientific data and research that says these things, some of these things don't seem to add up. And then you censor those voices. There is going to be a concern for 
everyone. In Tunisia, it shows that only one-third were wanting to get vaccinated. In Lebanon, only about 17% around April 15th, 17% of the Lebanese population had registered to get vaccinated. In Yemen, 84% said they did not want to get the jab. This is, this is widespread throughout the Middle East. There are some nations that are, are doing much better at uh, getting everyone to get the jab. Those nations, according to DW, would be nations like the UAE and Saudi Arabia, where they say, quote unquote, media is more tightly controlled. So the official messaging on vaccinations explained Mahmoud Ghazali, a Lebanese expert in an open source verification, said that in March, surveys suggested that 62% of residents in Saudi were willing to be vaccinated. That's still only two-thirds of the population. Now, at the end of this article by DW, a, a German newspaper, they have a quote from Hizam Rahawi, who is a Syrian health expert, and she said, in my opinion, the best way to deal with the high levels of vaccination hesitancy is to give clear, truthful, and transparent messages. And I fully agree. That is the best way. We need to have clear, truthful, and transparent messaging. But that is not what we are seeing, and that is a problem. We have not seen clear, truthful, or transparent messaging throughout this whole thing. In fact, what we have been seeing is a censoring of anything that goes against the establishment point of view. We've been seeing that from big tech. We've been seeing that everything's falling in line with the WHO, CDC. If you post or say anything that goes against the, the narrative, you will be censored, you'll be turned off, you'll be labeled as misinformation. Now, if these, if these vaccines truly, truly are safe, if they are, then I say probably what we're seeing right now is like the boy who cried wolf except in reverse. If you remember the story of the boy, boy who cried wolf, the boy who cried wolf is this, there's this little shepherd boy and he's out in the field watching the sheep and he's bored. He's lonely. So he rings the bell calls out to all the other all the other villagers says there's a wolf there's a wolf quick come and save us they come out there's no wolf happens again two three times and now the fourth time there actually is a wolf he rings the bell and nobody comes the boy who cried wolf but this time it's the opposite in this in this crisis we saw the opposite we saw ah it's it didn't come from a lab in china ah no you can't say that oh this, this isn't going to be a problem. China denying that there, there was any issue. Oh, you don't need to wear masks. Oh, now you need to wear masks. Oh, we're all going to lock down for, you know, one, two weeks and we'll flatten the curve and then we'll be back to normal. Oh, I, now it's going to be three months. Oh, lockdowns don't work. Oh, we're going to do more lockdowns. It's back and forth messaging. And anytime that someone tries to step out of that narrative, any voice that's dissenting is shut down. I mean, look at President Donald Trump. <laughs> so many of the things that he said when he said them 
We're called xenophobic. We're called ridiculous. And then just months later, <laughs> the mainstream media, there's, there's a change in the regime in the White House. And now the mainstream media is going along with what Biden is now saying, which he's now just echoing what President Donald Trump used to be saying. So these are reasons that people are hesitant because for so long, people would get shadow banned or taking their videos taken off of YouTube for saying that this originated in a, in a lab in China. And now as the story comes out, oh, it looks like it actually might have originated in a lab in China. And now that's allowed again. So the population is saying, if this is the case, then why should we trust? Why should we trust you now? What if these actually turned out to be unhealthy? Turned out to actually have severe problems. We're going to wait a little bit. We're just going to hold our breath a little bit until we see what exactly is happening. Well, as I said, this it's breaking down across the world. Uh, Australia. Here's a clip from Australia. I actually think this clip was from April, but here is a, a clip from. Australia and some protests that people are having when it comes to the mandatory vaccinations. The group is opposed to the government's pandemic response and critical of the COVID jab. Border closures and mandatory masks. And now all this talk about a mandatory vaccine. We have virtually nothing to distinguish from Australia, between Australia and China. It's just about basically informed consent and choice. That's... <laughs> What they're saying here in this clip is true. We're seeing this push. We're seeing a, a lockdown. We're seeing mandatory masking, mandatory lockdown, and now mandatory vaccinations. What this gentleman was saying in this clip and what, what they're arguing is we want to have the freedom of choice. We want to be able to choose. This shouldn't be something that's mandated on us. Well, in France, over the, the last week, France came out and said that government workers are going to be have forced mandatory vaccines and to enter public places or coffee shops or public transport, you will be forced to have a vaccine. Well, people were definitely not happy with that. Here's a compliment from uh, Al Jazeera News. See people fighting police, tear gas. Here's an older lady saying, I'm absolutely against this health pass because I think it's ridiculous that I have to get injected just to have coffee in an outdoor table. It's just crazy. More people filling the streets. People kicking tear gas in protest. This man says, I've chosen to protest today to fight the health pass. Which is just a completely anti-democratic measure a completely arbitrary one, I think right now we are heading more and more towards a dictatorship. This is coming from France. France, it's definitely not the, at least from our American viewpoint, it's definitely not the, our favorite nation when it comes to, to America. There's a lot of bad blood between the Americans and the French. And we've seen throughout French history with bloody revolutions time and time again, when they em embraced the age of reason and throughout religion as a whole, we, we saw the catastrophes that happened. And France has very high 
resistance to these vaccines, and yet the government is mandating them. When that is being compulsorily put on people, there is there is going to be pushback because people are saying, if this is so great, if this is really going to save my life and everyone else's life, then why are you mandating it? Why are you forcing it on me if you're saying that you can convince me otherwise? Then convince me otherwise. Don't force it on me. Well, the same thing is happening right now in Greece. This is from the Global News. Athens, Greece, July 14th. 5,000 people gathered to oppose vaccinations for uh, mandatory vaccinations for workers in certain sectors. This man says every person has the right to choose. No government can choose for us. What we do, our bodies, and what others do for us, it's for us to decide, not them. Thousands of people across Greece gathering saying we want to have the right to choose. This should not be something that the government is arbitrarily pushing on us for a disease that for many under 50, 60 has a 95 to 93 percent, 95, 99.5, excuse me, percent recovery rate. It's, it's not, it's not what it's being made out to be. Well, Australia as well is going into a, a five-day lockdown. Here's a clip from the Australian news uh, commenting on uh, what's happening there in Australia. Victoria is beginning its fifth lockdown of the pandemic this morning as authorities launch a preemptive strike against the highly contagious Delta strain. Delta. Last night, protesters took to Melbourne's streets just hours before the five-day stay-at-home orders came into place. But many residents are embracing the move. And, and here, if you're listening and not watching, uh, you can see on your, if you're listening to a Podcast 2.0 compatible app, you'll be able to see a, a photo of the crowded streets in Victoria, Australia, with signs of people saying, we will not consent, no compliance. Uh, you will not force this on us. Well, they did a couple man on the street interviews and wow, these are, these are gold. Hopefully this five day will get out of the way and we'll be free again. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully five days we'll get it out of the way and we'll be free again. Yeah, right, we've heard that narrative. And we've also heard the WHO say, hey, guys, it doesn't look like lockdowns work. In addition to that, we have a couple more clips here. But still, in addition to that, I read an article saying that more children committed suicide than died from these lockdowns. That these lockdowns, you're more like a child is more likely to die from suicide from the lockdowns, the increase that we've seen in child suicide in the last 20 months than to die from COVID-19. The damage that these things are doing to a, an entire generation, it's astounding. Here's a, another lady from Victoria. I'm disappointed about it, but what else is the other option? We're all I'm disappointed about it, but what else is the other option? Maybe to not shut everything down. Here's here's another lady. Kind of getting used to it by now. <laughs> I'm kind of getting used to it by now, and and that's the whole point. The whole point when we can when when you can normalize something over time, you start small and you slowly slowly 
spoil the pot until we're used to totalitarian methods. As, as he said in this verse, very first clip from Australia, uh, and, and this man talking about how first it started with mandatory masks, then it started with mandatory lockdowns, and now we have mandatory put a shot in your arm. That is where it is going. Well, the U.S. Press Secretary, Jen Psaki, she had, a, had quite the show the uh, last Thursday at the White House with some pretty shocking statements concerning uh, censorship and the push that the Biden administration is looking to take and influence Facebook and other big tech platforms with. Here is uh, the U.S. press secretary. So we are ma regularly making sure social media platforms are aware of the latest narratives dangerous to public health that we and many other Americans seeing are seeing across all of social and traditional media. Notice, they're making sure that they're flagging, they're, they're talking to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, big tech platforms about the narratives that are out there. Remember, this is a war about narratives. This is the, the, the entire monologue in the beginning, that if you can control language, if you can control thoughts, if you can control that narrative, then you can control the people. And they're saying, we are going to make sure that the narratives that we do not want out there are being controlled, and we want our narrative to be pushed forward, she, she goes on in this clip. And we work to engage with them to better understand the enforcement of social media platform policy. A couple of the steps that we have, um, you, you know, that could be constructive for the public health uh, of the country are uh, providing uh, for, for Facebook or other platforms to measure and publicly share the impact of misinformation. on. So the, the Biden administration is saying, and, and pause, if you are somewhere else in the world, if, if you're not an American, I'm an American, but I live outside of the United States, but this directly is going to have an impact on everyone in the globe. The way that that big tech ends up responding to this in the future is going to impact the entire flow of information on a global level. We, we've talked numerous times about Section 70 in India that, that deems these social media platforms as essentially public bulletin boards where they don't have editorial power. The same as Section 230 in the United States, which says Facebook and Twitter, these are, they're not public services, even though there are, are statements by the U.S. Supreme Court which seem to open the door to say that, well, these are actually almost becoming like phone lines and public utilities. But they're saying these platforms have the freedom to take some things down without being editorial in them, but they're not going to be held liable for something that you or I post because it's a public bulletin board. But if governments are able to merge with these platforms, if they're able to merge with these platforms and begin to shape the way that, that information is flowing on these platforms, even though they might remain private companies, governments, uh, centralized uh, establishment narratives can be pushed and forced on these platforms, silencing anyone who who thinks otherwise. So this is what she's saying. First, going back to the press secretary, let me replay that little last bit of that clip again. Are there platforms to measure and publicly share the impact of misinformation on their platform? So she wants these platforms to measure and publicly share 
the the impact of mission information on their platforms, which I'm assuming it's how many people are engaging with what the White House is considering misinformation. Uh, and the audience it's reaching. Uh and the audience it's reaching. So now that could just be big macro data saying this is the basic demographic of the person that it's reaching, but it can also go much further. If you remember just last, a couple of weeks ago, we didn't talk about it here on the show, but Facebook began to show messages to the users asking, is someone that you know, are they potentially becoming radicalized? If so, let us know and report them. So we know that they're, they're already pushing to look to individuals, not just big mass conglomerates of people, but they're, they're taking their data and they're laser focusing on specific individuals. So is, is what will happen is now there's going to be a, a public list to let everyone know what sort of information you or I have read or going to be reading. Will it become public? Because at least for sure right now, that list is already out there. There's already metadata on everything that you or I read when we use platforms like Google. All that data is then compiled and sold not only to governments, but it's sold to advertisers and marketers. And it sounds like what she's, to me, it sounds like what she's saying is we need to have a, a public record that we need to know who these messages are reaching and who believes what. Misinformation on their platform uh, and the audience it's reaching. Uh, also with the public, with all of you, um, to create robust enforcement strategies that bridge their properties and provide transparency about rules. You should Robust enforcement strategy that bridges their properties and creates enforcement of rules. Essentially saying we need to have, all, you know, the internet started off as this, this decentralized place, this decentralized platform. And then we began to see some centralization. We saw, and it's been great because of the network effect. We saw MySpace come about and that network effect connected people. We saw Facebook come about and we were able to connect with longtime lost friends. That network effect is so powerful. But now we're seeing a further, a further unification of power saying we need to bridge all, we need to bridge Facebook and Twitter and, and Snapchat and uh, TikTok and Instagram. We need to compile a, a unified database on all of these users. Why? Well, she goes on. Shouldn't be banned from one platform and not others. Uh here, you shouldn't be banned from one platform and not others. Here it is again. Properties and provide transparency about rules. You shouldn't be banned from one platform and not others. So some people are arguing that she's saying you should be banned from all platforms. Other people are saying, well, no, 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 that's not what she's saying at all. But what is clear, what seems to be clear to me is that there is an argument for unification of controlling, controlling the narrative, controlling the media, of saying, we want to know on a unified, on a unified way to, to collate all the data so we can see who is sharing what, we can share who is reading what, and then we can take a unified action against individuals in their sharing across all platforms to de-platform people uniformly across these platforms and to have a unified codified system of what can and can't be shared. If that, and that's going to be informed by who? 
by the establishment powers that be in, in the government. If that's not censorship, and of course they're saying that it's not censorship, why? Well, it's because it's private companies that are ultimately making those decisions, not us, but it's in lockstep with government institutions, being informed by government institutions, so highly suspect. Uh, if you are for uh, uh, providing misinformation out there, taking faster ac action against harmful posts. As you all know, information travels quite quickly. If it's up there for days and days and days, when people see it, you know, there's, it's hard to put that back in a box. And of course, promoting quality information algorithms. I don't know how they work, but they all do know how they work. Um, so those are some of the steps that we uh, think could be constructive for public health, for public information, uh, for public, uh, and you know, the right of the public to know. So right here, what she's saying is, we need to have more algorithms. We need to have algorithms that not only push down information that we don't want spreading, but we want algorithms that push forward our narrative, that narratives that we deem are good for the public health. Now, of course, we do want, we do want experts, we do want scientists, we do not, we do want people who are educated and know what's going on to properly inform the public. And of course, the government does have a responsibility in helping and sorting through what is what is accurate and verifiable information. But it definitely seems that they are looking to leverage these platforms and create algorithms that shape public opinion. And who gets to decide? And once these policies are established, once these, these modes of controlling the narrative are established, maybe today it is really for a good cause. But that means tomorrow it can be used for, for whatever other purpose. Once the, the policy is established, it can be used for administration after administration for, for globally shaping uh, narratives. Here's a, a clip where a reporter in the crowd pushes back, taking what Facebook said, because here uh, the U.S. press secretary, she's saying, well, Facebook isn't doing enough but Facebook responded to this and saying actually we've done a huge amount to promote vaccinations and to take down what we deem as disinformation here's uh, the pushback and Facebook responded yesterday after the press briefing they say that they removed 18 million pieces of COVID misinformation uh, they've connected more than 2 billion people to reliable information so does the White House find that sufficient clearly not because we're talking about additional steps that should be taken. So if you're already upset with what we're seeing happening across YouTube and Facebook as far as censorship, taking down posts, flagging posts, I mean, my wife, she has posts that are flagged that it's just her and her, and her son, her and our kid. And it's this is deemed inappropriate. You know, this is violent information. Or, or she'll have something on, on Instagram that's, flagged when she's talking about, you know, healthy marriages and saying this is misinformation and against our community policy and it's, you know, a little censor above it. They want to do more of that. This is what it's saying. We want to create policies that do more about that. Well, here is, here's another reporter pushing back uh, just a little bit more on, uh, on Jennifer. Though I think for a lot of people on Facebook is that now this is big brother watching you. 
they're more concerned about that than people dying across the country because of a, a pandemic where misinformation is traveling on social media platforms. That feels unlikely to me. If you have the data to back that up, I'm happy okay, to discuss it. So, so what he's saying here is people are a little bit more concerned about Big Brother, about government oversight, watching everything that you're saying, watching everything that you're reading, controlling the flow of information. People are more concerned about that than about the fact that there might be, there might legitimately be misinformation, information that's not scientifically accurate that's floating around. And I agree with this. Here's why. If there's something that's truly misinformation, if people are looking for it, let there be a free form of ideas and people can go and they can make their informed decision. They can look at both sides of the argument if they're looking to find what's true and accurate. But the moment that we give away our, our liberties for the sake of safety, and here she says, because of a pandemic, well, what does the pandemic and COVID spreading across the globe, that's not being spread by Facebook, but yet they're not letting a good crisis go to waste. They're, they're moving their, their goals and their goal line and their agenda forward by taking more liberties away so that they can better control. And yes, I do believe, I am more concerned about what the government might do years from now if they have more control and more censorship what they might do, because we've seen history. We've seen history. We've seen how it played out. We see how it played out in, in the USSR. We see how it played out in, in, in the CCP. We, we've seen how it played out time and time again when a few people have the power to control the global narrative or, or a national narrative. And we see how more than just a few people end up dying. We see massive man-made famine. We see totalitarian control. And that is a danger sign that many, that many are concerned. And it's not just right-winged Americans. We just went through clip after clip after clip of people in, in France, people in Greece, which are both, you know, very, very left-leaning nations. We've seen people in Australia, people across the globe are saying, I don't, I don't like the direction that this is going. I'm wary about this. It's not just a, uh, something that's centralized to uh, American politics. It is a global issue. We don't take anything down. We don't block anything. Facebook and any private sector company makes decisions about what information should be on their platform. Our point is that there is information that is leading to people not taking the vaccine and people are dying as a result. And we so here, yes, as we said before, governments do have a responsibility to, to look at the data, to look at the science, and to have a, an open forum to discuss best practices to inform the public and to help carry that out in the public. But here, here she's saying, we're not the ones that's censoring, but we're definitely telling them what to censor. We're definitely telling them how to use and what to flag as misinformation. And, and more, moreover, we have to ask, who are the people that gets to decide, 
the narrative? Who are the people that gets to decide what is misinformation and what is actually real information? Because it's the people that get to decide that gets to decide who is legitimate and who is not, what is accepted and what is not. So what's that process? What's that process of censorship? And John Milton wrote, wrote about this, that the moment that you begin censoring, you have to censor the censors, censor the censors who are censoring the censors. And before you know it, you can't have windows because you can't look outside the window because who knows what you might see. This is the error that comes in when we begin to seek to control information and seek to control media rather than letting the best ideas win. Well, Wikipedia was the place, was the place, was being the imperative word in that sentence for the broad and decentralized place of information on the internet where the best ideas won and where you're able to go to get a rounded viewpoint of any hot topic issue. Back, back when it started, it was a place where millions of curators came to, on the back end, argue about what should or shouldn't be in any post of any entry to make sure that people had a rounded, full view of what was happening and what is happening on any given subject and any given topic. But that has changed. Wikipedia used to be a place of, of neutrality, used to be a place of, of decentralization and broad where you know that you're, you're going there and in the going there, this is why I go. I, I would go to Wikipedia because I know that people have fought it out and I'm going to hear both sides of the story. I'm going to hear more than one perspective. But according to Larry Sanger, the co-founder of Wikipedia in this interview with Freddie, Sayer, Freddie Sayers from Lockdown TV, uh, segment Lockdown TV on his, his podcast YouTube show, Unheard, uh, Wikipedia is changing. Now, especially over the last five years or so, Wikipedia has has changed, as you indicate, quite a bit. Um, so first of all, um, yeah, I mean, uh, it's really hard to participate. On a lot of articles, if you go in and you make any edit at all, um, you will be sternly warned, if not just kicked out. And it doesn't matter if it's a completely positive, positive edit. This sometimes even happens on articles that are, are you know, unimportant. Wikipedia is known um, now by everyone to have a lot of influence in the world. Um, and so there's a, a very big, nasty, complex game being played behind the scenes um, to make the articles say what somebody wants them to say. There's a game being played behind the scenes to make the article say what somebody wants them to say, what the establishment wants them to say. And it used to be a place where ideas were fight out and the best ideas would win. And you'd have a rounded viewpoint where all ideas were being included in the, in the, the broad decentralized encyclopedia of humanity, Wikipedia where everyone gets to contribute, everyone gets to join in, but no longer is the case. As he's saying, even if you're making a positive edit, oftentimes you're gonna get banned and kicked off and your edit will be rejected. 
even if it's true. Why? Because the people have figured out that millions and millions of people are looking to Wikipedia to inform their worldview, to inform the way that they view the, 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 the important subjects of the world, of our time, of society, and of culture. Larry Singer goes on. If you look at the articles that Wikipedia has, you can just see how they are are um, simply mouthing the the view of the World Economic Council or World Economic Forum and um, the World Health Organization, uh, and the CDC, and 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 various other establishment mouthpieces like Fauci. Um, they take their their uh, cues from them. Now it's it's understandable from their point of view why they would do that because um, they're simply uh, by their policies they are they're not totally restricted to, to secondary sources but that's what they emphasize they emphasize not the primary sources for information. So they don't, they don't look up tables of statistics and draw their own conclusions. They want to, to, to cite articles by journalists who have looked at those tables of, of statistics, right? Um, and this is an important point. What he's making, the point he's making here is saying, one, everyone, when you look at the, the Wikipedia sites, they're all following lockstep with world established powers. WHO, the CDC. And he's saying it makes sense why they would do that. Why? Because the people who are editing and creating these pages, they're not looking at original data because one, most of these, maybe, I don't know, it depends. Wikipedia is compiled by millions of people, but Wikipedia doesn't want you go to going to the original source Wikipedia wants you to go to secondary sources, people and quote-unquote trusted experts who have already said this is what the data means, and then you pull from those secondary sources. But now, if you are able to control the secondary sources, you are able to control the final output that is, that is presented to you and I who go to Wikipedia probably every day, if not every week. He continues. And not all journalism, like the Daily Mail is out. You can't, you can't um, cite the Daily Mail at all. You can't cite Fox News on sociopolitical issues either. Um, it's just, it's banned now on, on uh, so what does that mean? It means that um, if a controversy does not appear in the mainstream center left media, um, then it's it's um, not going to appear on Wikipedia. And if it doesn't appear on Wikipedia, then it doesn't exist. If just by these this established the establishment, the the progressive left, by them being able to control one little thing, which is hey, we are going to totally reject any sort of publications from these right center right leaning uh, journalistic houses. We're going to reject anything from these sources. You can instantly shape the narrative. You can instantly shape the information that people are seeing. And if, if you can influence what people are seeing, that very first point, what your thoughts are, well, then pff, the game's won. 
Because if you don't have language for it, if the information is not presented, then you can win the battle. You can win the worldview. And if you can win the worldview, you can control society. Well, for one thing, there are a lot of experts out there who are not going along with um, the the uh, prevailing establishment point of view. But there's a lot of Nobel Prize winners, distinguished doctors and so forth, whose views are not only not welcome on Wikipedia, they're literally censored um, on uh YouTube and and sometimes Facebook and Twitter, um, where uh, videos of interviews made with such people are are removed. So it, it's not just a, a fringe group of people who are are quack scientists, who are pseudoscientists, who you know got their university their degrees from universities like What's the Matter You and you know just home baked background. Wackos, these are people who have won Nobel Peace Prize, who are, who are not welcome to post and have their, their information shared on places like Wikipedia and the other big tech industries because there is a, there's a unified narrative that is being followed. He, he goes on, two more clips by Freddie. We put one version of reality out there, then... Um, we are, first of all, manipulating what everyone is supposed to believe. In other words, we're making a decision for them as encyclopedists. Um, and second of all, and, and there's something wrong with that. Um, it, again, takes the, uh, the right to decide based on what uh, evidence is available, um, what we shall believe on such a question. I mean, we're talking about how we should think about all of the issues that that uh, inform um, how uh, how we vote, how our representatives' uh, initiatives are going to be received by the public, and 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 so forth. So, if if only one version of the facts is uh, is allowed then that gives a, a huge incentive to um, wealthy and powerful people to seize control of, of things like Wikipedia um, in, in order to, um, to shore up uh, their, um, their power. And they do that. He, he's so right here at the end. If, if only one set of fact an opinion is allowed. If only one narrative, if we're willing to compromise, and if we're willing to say, well, for the sake of safety, for the sake of public safety, we're gonna just shave this corner off a little bit. We're just gonna round this out. We're gonna make this a little bit more, you know, center of the road, a little bit more appealing. We're gonna make this a little bit more what goes along with the establishment. The moment that we do that, and we begin to censor just a little bit, powers that want to control the way that you see the world, the way that you think about the world, the way that you that you think about your life, they are able to step in and shape everything that you think because you're able to shape everything that you see because you're turning to sources like Wikipedia where you're expecting to get 
a a rounded view to understand well what are the different what are the different data points that are out there but instead you're getting one side while being told you're getting both sides for instance here at this show i, I it's it's clear you're getting my opinion you're getting my side of of the story you're getting the way that I have looked at the narratives, looked at the facts and say, hey, this is the conclusion that I'm drawing. This isn't an, an unbiased, non-biased show. I've never said that it was. Clearly it's not. Clearly we're saying, hey, this is, this is how we can build a coherent and cohesive worldview that enables us to own our future, enables us to, to have right standing and right relationships with, with people around us, to to lay a framework and a foundation uh, of morality, a framework and, and foundation of relational health with one another, of, of leadership. That is what we're doing. We're not, we're not an unbiased journalistic news source. And yet at the same time, I get comments on one videos, you know, saying you're a propagandist shill for, you know, the Zionists, da, 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 da. And on the next video, it's you're a propaganda shill for Islam and da, 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 da. And the next video, you're a propaganda shill for, you know, fill in the blank. I get people on both sides contradicting, even on the same video, saying I'm a shill, but for the other side. So that to say, even though I am giving an opinion, and this show gives a specific opinion. I definitely don't think that we, we fall along just a, a pure uh, propaganda show mouthpiece. We do try to look at the, the topics and the issues in depth, not just following one single uh, line of thought processing and narrative, even as we did when we, even in this episode, when we looked at the, the vaccination numbers, there is so many a qualification saying, okay, let's understand how this data is working and let's not jump to conclusions. But this is probably why people are hesitant because they're hearing these stories and they're not being dressed, addressed well by government or media. Instead, they're being dismissed with another narrative just being placed over it. Now, these narratives, these are the, 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 the spirits, if you will, of origin that are that are in the atmosphere, that are in the airwaves, and if you can control that, these are, if you can control what's in the airwaves, not only in the natural realm but in the spirit realm, then you can control and influence the minds and the thoughts and the attitudes of people, and that's why we need to take those things captive. Everything that props itself up against uh, against the the knowledge of God, against the, the laws that God gave us to live by against the, the, it's really, it's being propped up against the knowledge of God because most of these ideologies beyond just what we're seeing with vaccine hesitancy, but when it comes to CRT and this trans movement, it is saying we are worshiping creation rather than the creator. All of these ideologies, we are worshiping creation rather than the creator and they're there, it's it's a cosmic humanism that's taking taking place, that's being replaced with uh, sound sound morality and sound moral views, uh, and and being able to see the world and have frameworks to view the world through to, through the right abstractions, and that that is what's being uh, being pressed upon this generation. 
this postmodern generation, that is what's being pressed. There is no truth, and you are equivalent to God because you can decide what is true for you. So what is, but what is the answer? One last clip from Larry Sanger, the co-founder of Wikipedia. What is the answer to the centralization of media and controlling of the voices that are out there? Well, here's this last short clip. The, the answer, and I hope this is the direction we're moving in, and there's some evidence that, that it is, is that we, we move back to a more decentralized internet. Um, so uh, when Wikipedia was getting started, the internet stood for um, you know, a, a plethora of independent voices. <clears throat> that's, that's what you win. It was like the Wild West. That's what the internet used to be. It was a wild west, a, a plethora of, of international voices where you could go and you could sort, sort out for yourself the topics and the issues. But it's now moved to, to centralization. And you heard uh, Jen Pisecki saying that we want to see a bridging of all of these centralization, centralized platforms to create even greater centralization so we can control the information flow, so we can track to know who is consuming what. And in the unfortunate circumstance that this needs to happen, we can deplatform someone from all three platforms at one time because we can track exactly what is being said and who is saying it and who has consumed it so that we can follow up with those persons, maybe with a door-to-door -door knock, to let them know that they've been deeply deceived by people who are going against our narratives. Well, for our next segment, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Welcome back to, yeah, that makes sense. We're in a post-truth society where we have exchanged truth for lies. Reason has been exchanged for postmodern irrationality. The only thing that makes sense is the absurd. The absurd becomes normality. And I mean, that's what we saw in those, those great clips from Australia where the ladies are, are saying, you know, we're kind of used to it now. This absurdity is now normality. Or the, the gentleman from that same clip saying, you know, hopefully in five days we'll get our freedom back. It's like, yeah, it's it's been a year and a half. You don't got your freedom back yet. I don't think five days is going to change anything. But man, th in this segment today, if that makes sense, the American bookseller for free expression, which is acronym ABFE, which is a sponsor and advocate for Banned Book Week. Now, Banned Book Week is a week that celebrates the freedom to read uh, by encouraging readouts and bookstore displays and community activities designed to raise the awareness of the ongoing threat of censorship. So to break that down, there's the American bookseller for free expression who sponsors and runs Banned Book Week. Banned Book Week, it's, hey, there's all these, all this literature that has been banned in the past, cens censored material. We're against censorship. The, the, the slogan for Banned Book Week this year is, books unite us, censorship divides us. Well, the American Bookseller for Free Expression is owned by another company, which is the ABA, the American Bookseller Association. Okay, so far, so good. So we have the American Bookseller Association, they own ABFE, and then those people are sponsoring and, and run the, 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 the banned book week. 
Well, this is where it, it all begins to make sense in this backwards world. The ABA sent out Abigail Schreer's book, Irreversible Damage, the trans Transgendered Craze Seducing Our Daughters. We just uh, talked about this book just a couple episodes back where we, we pulled a bunch of clips from Abigail talking about transgendered, transgenderedism, and how it's really uh, an epidemic, as the scientists are using that word, uh, the sociologists, the psychologists are using that word, uh, because it's not just transgenderism, it's not just exploding everywhere across the globe, it's exploding in a very small, unique demographic of young teen girls who are mostly uh, socially isolated, who have helicopter parents who are online more than they have in-person relationships. And, and in this book, she describes how there would be classes of, of in all girls' schools, classes, 80% of the class all coming out as transgendered in the same day. And then the school system just going along with it, just changing everyone's name Oh, not not responding to a parent when the parent re responds or or says the the actual name of the child, and, and the these school systems are just fully drink drunk the Kool Aid and going along with it. That if a teenage or if a child, a, a five year old, a three year old, says one day in class flippantly, "I am the opposite gender," well, then it must be true, because you know what. Those straight people, every straight people is just, you know, they're just a, a little bit, there's a little bit gay inside of everyone. But once you realize that you're transgendered or you're gay or you're whatever, well, that is your true identity and you couldn't possibly be straight. You couldn't possibly be cisgendered. You couldn't possibly be born in the right body. You know, you're, you're mismatched somehow. Everyone is. And so all you cisgendered people, you just haven't woken up to the fact that you're not cisgendered. Uh, normative, whatever words they're tacking on. There's just so many words. You're not that, but really deep inside, there's there's probably something else going on. So the moment that a kid reaches that revelation, well, boom, there you are. Your your identity has is changed, and we're gonna transition you hormonally hormonally as as fast as possible. Well, so the ABA sent this book out. And, and promotional material to their 750 bookstore members. And of course, uh, the rage soon came tearing down on ABA for sending out this hateful, uh, violent, violent book. Here's uh, some of the, th the things that blew up on Twitter. Uh, one person said on Twitter, well, here, the, the ABA first issued an apology. And this was, they got in trouble, one, because they sent the book out, and two, because their apology wasn't good enough. ABA issued an apology on Twitter saying the anti-trans book was included in our July mailing to our members. This is a serious, violent incident that goes against ABA's end policy, values, and everything we believe and support. It's inexcusable. Uh, since when has sending a book in a newsletter that you're subscribed to, when you're coming up on banned book week, a book that has been banned, how is that a how is that violence? Remember, we we've moved from our words or violence is violence. 
violence is no longer violence. Violence is the the only correct response to the, the, the systematic oppression that you feel if you uh, move into violence, well, that is the, the most noble thing that you could do. But if you speak, your speech is violence. If you don't speak, your silence is violence. And now if you mail a book, that, that mailing of a book that someone doesn't like, that they find offensive, well, that is a, a serious, violent incident. Well, it's, it's never enough. And the, the, the responses to the apology on Twitter are just as scathing. One user wrote, I'm disappointed with the use of passive language at the beginning of the statement and the shift in the, the blame shifting. They really should say that we included this book rather than saying an anti-trans book was included. So, so it's never good enough. It is once you bow and once you begin to appease and, and, and apologize, you give a mouse a cookie, and they want a glass of milk. They're going out more and more and more. And so the apology wasn't enough. One longtime ABA book member with the beloved staff across the transgendered spectrum, another person wrote, as a longtime ABA book member with the beloved staff across the gender spectrum, we were greatly disappointed, extremely disappointed and angered to see the ABA promoting dangerous and widely discredited trans, anti-trans propaganda. And we're calling for accountability, said the Harvard bookstore. Widely discredited, promoting dangerous. It's a dangerous book to say that, hey, we should think twice before injecting a kid with hormones. Hey, we should think twice before giving young teenage girls double mastectomies and uh, hysterectomies. We should think twice before instantly transitioning a person where it's irreversible. That's dangerous. Yeah, that's dangerous. Well, the, the CEO of ABA, Allison Hill, said, we traumatized and endangered members of the trans community. These incidences harmed booksellers harmed. They harmed booksellers and ABA board members and ABA staff who identified as LGBTQIA plus and or biops, people of color, as well as the wider community. They also added to the toxic culture overall. The toxic culture. We, we've moved from Hey, we shouldn't ban books. We shouldn't burn books. In fact, we're going to have a whole week where we are going to read banned books to saying, ah, we're going to ban these books because the banning and censorship of books isn't a toxic culture, but promoting a book is violence and it actually does harm to people. Well, the, the diversity, equity, and inclusion officer, the die officer, uh, Coria, who identifies as a quote unquote queer Latino fat-bodied person said, we're dealing with a historically white and cis organization in a white supremacist society. So there's going to be a lot of missteps. There, there's the problem. It's historically white cis organization with white supremacist society. That's the problem. It is white supremacy. That's the problem. We found the issue. It's actually racism. It's racism. It's white supremacy. That's the issue. Not the fact that, not the fact that 
we are going to continue to censor any sort of speech that goes against the status quo. Well, this this show is brought to you by listeners like you. We don't have advertisers advertisers on the show. So if you get value out of the show, which I assume that you do because you're here listening, I would ask that you would consider contributing your hard, cold fiat, or even you can stream Bitcoin to the show as you listen. If you want to contribute your fiat to the show, you can visit lucasscrobot.com and you can click the appropriate button there to, to contribute to our work and time-intensive work here to produce this show, to keep it free for you and free for all. Or you can stream Bitcoin as you listen, which I like to do personally for the podcasts that I listen to. And you can do that by visiting newpodcastapps.com and find a podcasting 2.0 certified app like Podfriend, Breeze, Sphinx, or Podstation. And you can listen to your show there. You can load up your Bitcoin wallet and you can stream one or two cents a minute as you listen. All right, don't go away. We'll be right back with our closing Weaver and Loom segment. Welcome back to Weaver and Loom, a part of the show where we take ancient wisdom and we weave it in with our everyday lives so that we can own our future and weave our destiny. Today, today's quote is a quote that has stuck with me for a long time and actually really influences the way that I view leadership. I remember the first time that someone shared this principle with me. I, I, I was hesitant. I was hesitant. I was principle hesitant for a while, uh, and I had to think about it for for quite some time. It, it was shocking. It was jarring to my mind. I'll get to the quote. It's a little bit long, but we'll we'll read through it and then we'll we'll discuss that quote. Here it is. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. That's from the Bible, 1 Peter 5, verses 2 through 3. Now, when I first heard this, it was in the context of when you are leading, don't force people to do something. Don't do something because you're being compelled to do it. And don't lead by compulsion. Meaning if you're leading your team and your community, if you're doing it by compulsion, you're doing it the wrong way. You're having to use manipulation. You're having to use force. You're having to use authoritarianism. But instead, lead and, and exercise oversight in a way that people are following you willingly. And while you lead, do not be domineering over those who are in charge. Do not be totalitarian. Do not control what they do and can't do, can and can't say what they can and cannot wear. Now, of course, as a leader, you need to define culture. You need to define values. You need to establish that so that there's a healthy culture and community that brings not only uniformity, it, it, not uniformity in a way that... Uh, is controlling where everyone looks the same, but uniformity around vision, where there's a, a harmony, where there's agreement, where there's unity among people, even when they don't agree. So 
But that needs to be established not under compulsion, not under force, not by using methods of shame and manipulation and gaslighting and arm twisting, but people should willingly follow. And the way that we do this is by serving. It's by being an example. It's by leading with humility. It's by walking humbly. And it's in that place of humility that we that we receive grace and strength and wisdom to lead because God opposes the proud, but he supports and exalts the humble. So as we lead humbly, as we lead our flock humbly, as we lead those that, that God has placed under us humbly, not under compulsion, not under forcing someone, but showing them, using the, the ideas of, of liberalism, and the idea of libertarianism and the ideas of, of freedom of thought and freedom of speech where you're making arguments and you're, you're proving yourself and you're proving the, the moral virtues and ideas and the plumb lines that we hold onto as being true. Not whether, and when, when I say true in that statement, it's not, you know, opinion A over opinion B, but the overarching framework that that we accept to be as truth, which is that we worship the creator and not the created, where there is, as we talked about Thomas Aquinas's uh, the, the four four laws, the eternal, divine, human, and natural laws, that there are things that exist outside of us that act as plumb lines in our lives and society. Those are the things that are true, and that is the truth that we are seeking out how to order our lives. And if we can lead that way, if we can lead in humility, rather than forcing and twisting someone's arm, we will actually create a healthier community and a healthier society. Now, thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for being here. This is a mighty long episode, longer than normal, but, uh, I feel like it did it did its job. If you want to get more out of the show, you can do that by sharing this show with someone else. This is how we build culture. It's brick by brick, conversation by conversation. And by sharing it, not only will that person feel loved because you included them in your life, but it also strengthens your viewpoint. It strengthens your opinion and maybe you'll be proved wrong. Maybe you'll be proved and you'll see something from a new angle from having a conversation around these topics and around these issues with people in your community. And that is how we lead. That is how we lead a community. We do it by sharing, by pulling people into relationship and by helping define reality. And it's through that we're able to discern truth the, the, the eternal plumb lines that we should order our lives by. And that is the thing that grounds us to uncover our purpose that we might own the future. <laughs>